This is Judaism Unbound, episode 126, Open Hillel. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And in our continuing series looking at the present and future of the relationship of American Jews and Israel, a topic that has come up again and again in our earlier conversations is whether certain points of view are outside of the, quote, red lines of Jewish organizations or whether they should be. Our guests today are members of an organization called Open Hillel, which promotes pluralism and open discourse on Israel-Palestine in Jewish communities on campus and beyond. They aim to eliminate Hillel International's rules and regulations, which exclude individuals and groups from the Jewish community on campus on the basis of their views on Israel. Open Hillel also seeks to end similar restrictions in other Jewish organizations. According to Open Hillel's vision statement, they are, quote, united not by a shared perspective on Israel-Palestine, but by a shared commitment to the Jewish values of open discussion and debate. Quote, we seek to promote Jewish institutions that honestly reflect the diversity of viewpoints found within the communities that they serve. Open Hillel says, quote, We believe that free discourse, even on difficult subjects, is essential in the context of an educational institution and a democratic society, and that open discussion and debate are core Jewish values. We are proud of our culture's long tradition of encouraging the expression of multiple and sometimes contradictory views and arguments. Our guest today are Rachel Sandalow-Ash and Eva Ackerman. Rachel Sandalow-Ash is a graduate of Harvard College and currently a student at Harvard Law School. She is one of the founders of Open Hillel and became Open Hillel's first ever national organizer, a position in which she served for two years. Eva Ackerman is the current national organizer for Open Hillel. She became involved in Open Hillel in 2017 and served on the steering committee as the workshop coordinator during the 2017-2018 academic year. She is a recent graduate of Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. Rachel Sandalow-Ash, Eva Ackerman, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's great to have you. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'm excited. Great. So well, we're excited, too. So to get started, we really wanted to understand in a deep way what Open Hillel is all about, but also I think it would be helpful to understand the history and the context that led to Open Hillel's being founded a few years ago. So Rachel, as one of the folks who were part of the founding of Open Hillel back in 2012, we were hoping that you could give us a little sense of what that historical context was that brought about Open Hillel. Great. Just to briefly introduce Open Hillel, we are a national movement of students and community members working to promote open discourse, inclusivity, pluralism, and democratic accountability in the Jewish community on campus and beyond. And I think that to understand Open Hillel's history, we need to really do a deep dive into the history of Hillel International, which since 1923 has served as the Center for Jewish Life on Campus. So at the time that Hillel International was founded, this was you know, shortly after the U.S. put into place uh, severe immigration restrictions. This was a time when anti-Semitism was a real problem, when a lot of schools instituted quotas on Jewish students. And Jewish students needed a place to come together to be Jewish. Um, and this was also a time, you know, I think something we've really seen in the American context, um, when the Jewish community was becoming more fragmented. 
We were seeing differences in denominations in which, you know, Jews would increasingly just spend time in synagogue or in other contexts with people who already shared their perspectives on religion, on politics, or um, on any other topic. And so when Hillel was founded, it was founded to be explicitly pluralistic, um, to be the center for Jewish life, not the center for Orthodox students or Reform students. And actually, about 20 years later, um, there's a great quote from one of the founders of Harvard Hillel, where there was a Hillel leader who said that they hoped that Hillel would be neither Reform nor Orthodox and neither Zionist nor anti-Zionist but would provide students with an intensive preview of what awaited them as Jewish adults. Um, so Hillel was really founded with this commitment to open discourse, to pluralism, to debate. Um, they were very conscious of the fact that they were an organization that was on campuses um, and that that meant that, you know, critical discourse was a really central part of their mission. Um, and I think that something that's really interesting is that in a little later on, like in the 1970s, um, oftentimes rabbis or Jewish professionals who couldn't build careers or were even fired from careers in synagogues or other Jewish communal institutions because of their political views would find a refuge in Hillel. So Hillel was actually the most open Jewish communal institution um, for a lot of its history. So Rachel, then bring us closer to 2012. What happened that brought about Open Hillel? Great. So I have a few more decades to go through. In the 80s and 90s, as Hillel starts to get more and more of its funding from a small number of donors, those donors who have very right-wing views on Israel-Palestine start to clash with Hillel students, um, with Hillel staff, and with sort of the old board, which consisted largely of professors and Jewish educators and other folks who had a real stake in promoting a vision of open discourse in the Jewish community on campus. And this conflict intensified over the course of the 1990s and the first decade of the 2000s. So in 2010, Hillel was faced with this difficult choice of trying to reconcile the wishes of its donors and the needs of its students. And they decided to basically outsource the problem to an Israeli think tank called the Rayud Institute. And the compromise that Rayut reached was the Standards of Partnership for Israel Activities, which Hillel enacted in 2010. And these standards, I, I mean, they call it a compromise. I think it was really implementing the vision of these small number of donors said that Hillel would not welcome and would bar individuals, groups, and organizations that denied the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish and democratic state, that delegitimized, demonized, or applied a double standard to Israel, that supported any form of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And the last one is exhibit a pattern of disruptive behavior towards campus events or guest speakers, or foster an atmosphere of incivility. These standards. The language is kind of vague, but in practice, they're quite restrictive. Because of the vague language around delegitimizing or demonizing or applying a double standard to Israel, that language is used to bar a variety of Israeli and Palestinian human rights activists, academics, journalists, other folks, anyone who is deemed to be too critical of Israel and Israeli policy. Um, and of course, the last part of the standards that bars working with anyone who is deemed to foster an atmosphere of instability is used to 
not allow Hillel to work with activists or the, you know, progressive community broadly. Yeah, it strikes me also, it's always struck me that another dimension where these standards don't seem to quite resonate and fit with the context of university is that fundamentally an American university is a place of openness and exploration of all sorts of ideas and any kind of restriction on ideas, whether it makes sense or not. And, you know, reasonable minds could differ about whether we wish that these ideas were restricted, but it seems that to restrict ideas at a university is so anomalous that it leads to this immediate sort of backlash from students that says, what are you hiding? This can't be right. So I guess I'm curious, what, tell us so what happened. I mean, how did the students respond? This, I think you said, was 2010, and Open Hilla was created in 2012? Yeah, so I, um, in 2012, I was a sophomore in college, and I was a member of a group called the Harvard College Progressive Jewish Alliance. And we were one of many affiliated groups of Harvard Hillel, and we sort of prided ourselves on promoting uh, dialogue around Israel-Palestine. Um, we co-sponsored events regularly with both Harvard Students for Israel and the Palestine Solidarity Committee. And in the fall of my sophomore year in 2012, we planned an event with the Palestine Solidarity Committee called Jewish Voices Against the Occupation, which was going to feature uh, two speakers, one Israeli and one an American Jew, who had both participated in protests against home demolitions in the West Bank. We booked a room, we signed the forms, and about two weeks before this event was supposed to take place, our Hillel director called us into his office, and he told us that he had gotten calls from Hillel International, from Combined Jewish Philanthropies, which is the Jewish Federation of Greater Boston, and from private donors who had collectively threatened to withhold $1 million from Harvard Hillel if we proceeded with this event, and who told us that you know, this event violated the standards of partnership, which we had never heard of, and therefore could not proceed in Hillel. He said that we could either drop the Palestine Solidarity Committee's name and sponsorship from the event, or we would have to move the event out of Hillel. We thought it was really important that in the events about the occupation, we worked with our Palestinian peers. So we moved the event out of Hillel, but we felt really strongly that this was not a choice we should have had to make that we should not have had to choose between working with our Palestinian classmates and peers and friends and being a part of the Jewish community in a you know, very physical sort of way. So we called up some friends at other schools, including you, Lex, and we sort of said like, hey, have any of you heard of these things called the standards of partnership? And we heard back, yes. And we learned that the standards were used not just to bar our events, um, but also to prevent Jewish student groups from affiliating with Hillel. That had happened at Brandeis, uh, to their chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace, to bar a variety of other events. And even there had been a case at SUNY Binghamton um, where a student leader had been asked to resign his Hillel leadership positions because he had participated in events um, not even in Hillel, where there had been a speaker who violated the standards of partnership. We felt strongly and still do that the standards were antithetical to our Jewish values, antithetical to the values of the university, um, and counterproductive to having the kinds of conversations that we thought needed to happen on Israel-Palestine 
So we launched a petition to Hillel International calling on them to end the standards. And that is how Open Hillel was born. Okay, so we've got some fantastic historical context here. Um, Eva Ackerman, we haven't heard from you much yet, um, but I know that you are exactly the person to help bring this up to the present moment. Um, What's going on in Open Hillel now, 2018? Um, Rachel took us through many, many decades, but tell us what's going on now and maybe your own story and how you connected to Open Hillel. I have been involved for a year now. The first few years of college, I was not involved in Jewish life on campus at all. I came from a synagogue that was incredibly involved in social justice and political activism. And my Judaism was always grounded in those values of tikkun olam, of tzedek, of making a better world for Jews and for all people. Um, So when I got to Bryn Mawr College, I went straight to Hillel because I really wanted to be involved in Jewish life again. And when I got there, I was told that there was no political activism at all happening in Hillel so that they would have Shabbat dinners, they would have a Shabbat service, but no sort of social justice, no sort of political activism, and no conversations on anything, including Israel-Palestine. I began school right after the summer of 2014, and I read the New York Times every single day and was adamant on the fact that Israel had a right to defend itself. And I got to school, and I started becoming friends with mostly people who were not Jewish through different social justice initiatives that I became a part of. And a lot of people said, hey, I've actually heard a very different perspective than the one that you're bringing, Eva. And I was still adamant in the fact that they didn't understand. I was Jewish. It was a totally different context. But I was incredibly confused. And I started going to events, listening to Palestinian speakers, finding out facts and history that I did not know about Israel-Palestine. But I didn't have any Jewish spaces to talk about these issues. And I decide after three years that I miss Judaism a lot. And that one thing that's really stopping me from being part of Jewish life again is that I have no idea what's happening in Israel-Palestine, and that is stopping me from fully committing to social justice work, and it's also stopping me from fully committing to Jewish life. So I go on birthright, and then I go on extend, and I learned about the standards of partnership that Rachel already mentioned and how those prohibit not only conversations about Israel-Palestine, but also social justice work and political activism on college campuses. So I think going back to your question, something that we've been discussing a lot this year at Open Hillel is that this isn't only about Israel-Palestine and that a lot of people don't feel accepted in Hillel spaces because of a number of marginalized identities. And we have to work on making spaces where people can bring their full selves with all of their identities. I'm curious, Rachel, if you could tell us a little bit more about kind of what, as you started the process of creating Open Hillel or responding to this in the the time period between where you left us off at the founding of Open Hillel and sort of the experiences that Eva has shared with us about how college students are, are experiencing Hillels that are not open. What is it that Open Hillel tried to do and 
how did it go and how is it going and and what what do you kind of see as as the goal is the goal kind of to try to get Hillel to undo these policies and and if so how do you think that's realistic given the pressures that they face from the donors and if the, the goals have moved beyond that I, I'd love to understand more what they are so I'll start by talking a little bit about sort of our work in those early years of the campaign and I think that at first we kind of thought the standards were all a big mistake because as any sort of young Jewish person who's like involved in the community knows, there seems to be a never ending hand wringing about why Jewish young people are leaving the Jewish community. And there seems to be a million different kinds of efforts to keep young Jews engaged and involved. And these standards just struck us as not just sort of morally wrong, but also truly counterproductive. So we tried to make that point. And we set up a series of meetings with Hillel leaders locally and internationally. And we were sort of thought to ourselves, well, surely they'll see that we're correct and they'll just get rid of this policy and we'll all be on our way. And I think we realized pretty soon that that wasn't going to work because the people who put these policies in place um, were actually more concerned about maintaining ideological purity within the Jewish community than about their supposed vision of broad-based Jewish engagement. So that's when we realized that we couldn't just achieve our goals through convincing people. We would have to have a more public campaign and really demonstrate the broad base of support for open discourse and really mobilize a larger sector of the Jewish community. So we started to have students at certain colleges hold votes among their student boards to declare themselves to be open Hillels. And at certain schools where um, the Hillel is largely funded by the school and there isn't a lot of funding from say Hillel International or the local federation, students have been able to do that. So we saw students at Swarthmore and at Vassar and at Wesleyan and later at Guilford, um, the student leadership got together and said, like, hey, these are our values. We believe in open discourse. We believe in pluralism. We reject the standards of partnership. We are now open Hillel's. But then we saw how Hillel International responded. So when two of these schools, when Swarthmore and Guilford um, tried to act on their Open Hillel declarations, and they invited as part of a nationwide Open Hillel campus you know, speaking tour, three longtime Jewish civil rights activists who had, you know, happened to have views that were deemed beyond the pale on Israel-Palestine when they invited these folks to campus, Hillel International threatened them with legal action. In the early years, we also decided that we wanted to have a conference. We wanted to bring people together. You know, we were sort of this ragtag network of students at all these different schools, and many of us had never met each other. And so in the fall of 2014, we held a conference that brought together 350 Jewish students and community members and had over 40 panels on different topics in Israel, Palestine, and the American Jewish community. Moving into the spring of 2017, um, there was an LGBT Jewish group at Ohio State that was a part of Ohio State Hillel. Um, they were called Nekeshets, well, they still are. They 
sought to participate in a fundraiser for LGBT refugees in the Columbus, Ohio area. And they were working with a coalition of like 15 different student and community groups. And one of those groups was the Ohio State University chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. And because Bnei Keshet participated in uh, this fundraiser, their Hillel got a call from Hillel International and they kicked them out of the Jewish community. This is how we see the, how the standards are used, not just to exclude people on the basis of their Israel-Palestine politics, but are also used oftentimes indiscriminately to exclude Jewish students who are you know, queer or people of color or are marginalized in other ways. And so Open Hillel mobilized in response. We had students across the country um, holding, holding Solidarity Shabbat for Bnei Keshet. We helped them fundraise to fund their annual Rainbow Seder. Um, and we have sought to build a community that extends across many campuses of students who are supporting each other in a world in which Hillel has in many ways abdicated its responsibility to support Jewish student life. Um, I'd just like to return to uh, your question about goals, Dan. Our goal is a Jewish community that is truly inclusive, a Jewish community that is pluralistic, which I think means something more than inclusive. It means that people are not just there. They're able to, you know, fully participate. All kinds of people are able to fully participate in Jewish life. We envision a Jewish community that is deeply engaged in the wider world and with issues of social justice that's not putting up walls that we too often see. And we believe in a Jewish community that is fundamentally run by and for the people that it serves. So in the context of Hillel or college campuses, that means elected student boards. In the context of JCCs or synagogues or whatever else, we would want to see, again, elected leadership where it's one person, one vote, and not one dollar, one vote. Also, off of what Rachel just said, not only does that include students themselves, but also staff members should feel like they can bring their full selves into those spaces and be able to challenge students and nurture students in the way that they need to without being scared that they could potentially lose their jobs, which I think is a huge problem currently on campuses across the country. I want to hammer home one element of the the last few years story that Rachel you just told because um it, it was my I, I don't know if it was a breaking point for me it was it was my awakening at as to the depth of the problems that we're facing on the issue of communal redlining and it's it's the civil rights veterans tour that you just spoke about I was living in Mississippi and the 50th anniversary of Mississippi Freedom Summer had a, there was a conference um, welcoming incredible incredible activists from all over the place to Jackson, Mississippi, to just commemorate 50 years since this defining moment of the civil rights movement. And so I'm in this room and I'm actually in the registration area. And as I sign up, I see that the name above mine on the sign up sheet was Dorothy Zellner. And so I know she's literally in the room because it's like a long line. Um, and I'm just shell-shocked and like in awe because Dorothy Zellner is like one of the Jewish voices of the civil rights movement in the 60s. She is a giant. I mean, people in all of these panels that were not about Jewish stuff at all were mentioning her work 
and and the defining role she played in fighting for voting rights, in fighting for equality in this country. And I like sheepishly had my fanboy moment and like introduced myself. We hugged. It was amazing. Because of that interaction, we ended up having more conversations and she connected us with a bunch of other Jewish activists that she knew from her time. And um, a friend of mine, Lonnie Kleiman, really was the, the engine behind this. She came up with this idea of bringing them around to campuses all around the country. I genuinely thought this would be a breaking point. This would be like, how could Hillel say that Dorothy Zellner, a woman who in the greatest, in one of the defining political battles of American history was on the proper side, loud with lots of consequences to her that she risked and, and that she faced. How could they possibly not allow her to speak in a space because of her opinions about Israel-Palestine? I, I really thought that I didn't think they'd like erase the standards of partnership, but I thought uh, they'll like look the other way. I was wrong. There were campuses that said no. Dorothy Zellner and a, a number of other activists that toured with her no, you can't. You, you, Jewish heroes, Jews who went and fought for civil rights, it boggled my mind. And it, and that was the point where I sort of reached the rea my, my pessimism, which was like, I really don't think that this is going to change within existing Hillel structures. And so that was a long preamble. I think it's an important preamble. But that was the moment where I started thinking about like, what's What's the iteration of the future of Jewish campus life that isn't just Hillel? I, I say that with no happiness. I was every I, I interned for Hillel International. I, I loved this organization. It shaped me. But I I don't think that an organization that is going to bar a civil rights hero of our time from the doors is the kind of organization that I can fully put lots of effort into. So I guess my question is. Has Open Hillel reached a similar place of pessimism? Is do you have? Can you help me feel more optimistic, or are you maybe also thinking about ways that that Jewish campus structures could exist outside of just the Hillel ecosystem? Two thoughts. I want to discuss a little bit about what you said about Dorothy Zellner and different civil rights activists. Um, something that really also changed my perspective this year was I wrote a history thesis on the 1967 Six-Day War and the American Jewish left's reaction to it. And I kept reading books from scholars that said that in the 1960s, there were no American Jews who were against the 67 war and the role that Israel took in it. And I went to my history professor who was alive during the 60s and is Jewish. And I told her this and she said, Eva, that's wrong. There were Jews who were against it. And I said, yes, I know that they were, there were Jews, but all the books that I'm reading are saying that there were Jews against it, but then they decided that they weren't Jewish. And she said, no, they did. They still identified as Jews. They just didn't want to be part of American Jewish institutional life anymore. And in thinking of people like Dorothy Zellner, I think back how many other Jewish activists have been stripped away, like have had their Judaism stripped away from them because of different politics they hold on maybe Israel-Palestine or a whole other range of issues? And what awesome Jewish activists are we leaving out of our historical memory as an American Jewish people? And I also see it now on college campuses, on my own campus of so many of my Jewish friends involved in this awesome work who definitely identify with Judaism, but don't identify with Hillel on campus, for example, or 
Jewish institutional life. And I think that's something that I was working through this year because a lot of those people who I just mentioned were people who helped start this group that I also helped start called Bicode Jews for Inclusion at Bryn Mawr and Hanford Colleges, which was an alternative Jewish group on campus and which is part of a growing movement of these alternative Jewish groups on college campuses. And I think what's really important to mention is that these groups are not saying we're done with American Jewish life. We don't want to partake. We're out. Instead, we're saying we understand these dynamics of power and we want to challenge those dynamics of power within our own communities and create something new. And I also want to go back and say that it's a both end answer. Each student activist might have a different approach to making Jewish life on college campuses more inclusive and more accessible. So we have some open Hillel activists who are leaders on their Hillel boards and who are doing awesome work through that, and others who decided that they would create alternative communities, and then others who are doing both. It strikes me that there's a comparison here to sort of the way that the Jewish community thought about cults in the you know, 70s and 80s, let's say, or in the late 60s, where they had this notion that there were all these cults out there that were trying to prey upon Jewish students and convert them, you know, and there was this effort to fight the cults. And that the idea was that the Jewish organizations on campus were kind of there as a bulwark against our children being wooed by these cults. And it sort of seems like there's a similar idea in the air today that has replaced the cults with this kind of anti-Israel activity and anti-Israel ambiance, right? There's this notion of the campus as kind of a war zone as it pertains to Israel, where our Jewish students are there and they're being wooed or persuaded by whether it's activist students or activist professors or there are people out there that are trying to sway our young Jews to their views about Israel. And that if the metaphor is to a war zone, then we have to kind of go on a war footing and we have to understand ourselves to be fighting those forces. I mean, that sort of seems to be the story that's being told out there. And whether or not you agree with that, and I'd love to sort of get your response from the field, you know, what, what do you say and what might you say to folks who, who are concerned that that's kind of what's going on on campus? But number two is that even if you thought that that was what was going on on campus, the other piece that I think the larger Jewish community often misses is that the campus is also a place of ideas. It's a place where open discussion of ideas is the predominant thing. So even if you have a war on campus, you're going to have to fight that war in a way that's very different from fighting that war elsewhere, because on campus, you're going to have to fight that war while winning the hearts and minds of students, which means that you have to be sort of open to ideas and, and figure out how to do that and win the war of ideas rather than trying to sort of wall off these ideas. So. I would first like to say that campus is not a war zone. Um, I think that's disrespectful to people who live in actual war zones. I think that it's truly bizarre the degree to which people see a peaceful and productive exchange of ideas as an existential threat. People have different perspectives on Israel-Palestine and also on a whole bunch of other issues on campus. And Jewish students, like their non-Jewish peers, are interested in engaging in all of these different issues. 
I've been a student or a student organizer for the past seven years, right? I was in, well, and also a high school student before that, but um, I was in college for four years. Then I was a, an organizer for Open Hill for two years, and now I am in law school. And I'm not sure where this idea of, of campuses as a war zone really came from. Um, I think it's entirely detached from reality. I think that people are, students are curious and students are passionate. And there's a really proud tradition of student activism in this country um, and students making a real impact and change in the world. This view that Jewish students are vulnerable to being wooed by, well, that, actually, that history of cults is really interesting. I, I didn't know anything about it. But this idea that Jewish students are so vulnerable to being wooed, I think that's, that's frankly really condescending. I think we should view Jewish students as smart and capable and interested in learning. And if you're a Jewish institutional, say, funder, and you're scared that if a student hears a view that's different from your own, that they will automatically believe that different view, then maybe it's because you're not so confident that you're correct. Jewish institutional leaders and funders do students a real disservice by not treating them like adults, um, by not, you know, fostering these kind of growth and conversations, and by instead trying to create this sort of sheltered environment where you never meet anybody Palestinian or hear anybody criticize Israel in any way at all. And I think that whatever your views on Israel-Palestine we should all be able to agree that students and all people should be able to talk to people from different backgrounds and, and learn about the situation for themselves. It's also important to note that Jewish students, no matter what their opinions on Israel-Palestine are, are still Jewish and still deserve to be in Jewish spaces and hold their Judaism close to them. And that having a litmus test for views on Israel-Palestine in order to enter Jewish spaces is barring a lot of people from entering those spaces who really do want to be a part of Jewish life on campus and that care about Judaism and that they might have a different opinion on Israel-Palestine than somebody else in the room and that's okay and they can still be in community together and have those discussions occasionally, not always, and celebrate Shabbat and eat dinner together. And I think that's really important. Something I've also noticed on my own college campus is that a lot of Jewish students, no matter what their opinions on Israel-Palestine are, come to me and say, you know, I say this to the outside world that I am a staunch Zionist or a staunch anti-Zionist. But in actuality, I have all these questions and I don't know where to go with my questions. And a lot of students who were, who were raised in places where there was no criticism of Israel come to me and say, you know, I really do believe in a Jewish state, but I also don't know what should happen with Palestinians. Or a lot of anti-Zionist Jews will come to me and say, I truly believe in anti-Zionism, but I also have questions about Jews who are living in Israel and what should happen there. So I think it's really important to have these spaces to complicate these questions and to realize that there are a lot of Jewish feelings that go into these questions. And that's a huge reason also why they need to be happening in Jewish spaces. And what do you say to the folks, you know, I've heard this argument that it's like some kind of argument that Hillel should be a safe space for people who are 
staunchly pro-Israel, you know, that we go around the campus and there are all kinds of places where we hear all this anti-Israel positions. And at least we should know that at Hillel, we can come there and feel like we have a safe place where we can sort of just be ourselves. You know, I mean, what do you say to the folks who, you know, are saying that in good faith, you know, that there are people who feel unsafe when there's criticism of Israel and wish to have a safe space for that. I mean, do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, so I have sort of two different thoughts on that. Um, One is that I think we have to answer the question, is Hillel the center for Jewish life on campus or is Hillel the center for for pro-Israel life on campus? And I think we at Open Hillel um, believe in sort of the original mission of Hillel as the center for Jewish life on campus. And as such, it needs to be the home for all Jewish students, not just Jewish students with a particular perspective. Um, And that in no way should preclude students who have a particular perspective from forming a group with that perspective and even organizing under a Hillel, you know, auspices. Like, I think that you know, in large Hillels, they can host an APAC chapter, a J Street chapter, and a Jewish Voice for Peace chapter. And each of those groups should be able to exist under the Hillel auspices. Each has its own very different political views on Israel-Palestine. And then when there's a larger institution that should be about bringing the whole Jewish community together, all of these people come together. I was super conservative on Israel going into college, and I still needed a space to talk about Israel. (laughs) So it's not only these like left-wing students who need this space, it's everyone. And I also think that a lot of students who aren't allowed into these Hillel spaces because of their politics on Israel-Palestine feel like they have no quote-unquote safe space to be Jewish either. And why are we saying that only one group of Jewish students are allowed to feel safe and not another group of Jewish students? And something that we've also talked about on my campus is maybe we should go past calling spaces safe and say, how do we challenge ourselves in these spaces? Because maybe safety isn't always the best thing for these kinds of spaces. And instead, discussion is really important. And that's how we're going to become better people. Because I truly believe that my Judaism is working to make the world better and working to make myself better. And that's through discussions and that's through activism. And just being in, a, in places that I feel comfortable is not always going to lead me to becoming a truly better person and a better Jew. I would just like to point out that oftentimes Hillel's that claim to be you know, quote unquote, apolitical, and especially in this era where Hillel has fully merged with the David Project, are really single-mindedly advancing a perspective on Israel-Palestine, and they view that as apolitical and all other perspectives as, you know, political and dangerous and invading the safe space. So just thank you so much to both of you for joining us for this conversation. Our listeners are going to so deeply benefit from engaging with what you've put forth today. Thank you. And thank you for your work in um, bringing open discourse to the Jewish community and talking to um, Jewish people and organizations who are engaged in such a wide range of Jewish leadership and Jewish community building and practice. Um, I think this is a, a really, a really neat virtual community that you all have created. 
We we really appreciate that. It's of course something that we strive for, and it means a lot to hear that uh, that we might be succeeding. So thank you very much. And most importantly, we want to close out the episode with another thank you directed at all of you out there listening. And we also want to encourage you, as always, to be in touch with us. Uh, let us know what you love. Let us know what you don't love. Let us know what questions you have. If you want to bring us to your community, any of those things, uh, there's a variety of ways that you can be in touch. Uh, first, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can head to Twitter at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we'd like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a one-time basis or a monthly recurring basis. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.